yeah, it's very Bachelor in Paradise. Random high schooler to princess of Japan. Of course I love like trashiness and I love like a good rom-com. Systems of government. Welcome to Literary Connections. We're friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world and we're using books to stay connected. I'm James, thankful I can explore my personal identity without the Tokyo tattler trying to fit me into a box in Milan, Italy. And I'm Melissa Hansen, not quite American, not quite Chinese, but definitely a princess, calling in from San Francisco. And today we're reading Tokyo Ever After by Amiko Jean, if you couldn't tell from our introductions. I also want to mention that this podcast does not believe in spoilers, so if you continue listening, be prepared to experience some spoilers for Tokyo Ever After. Yeah, and by some we mean a lot. Yeah, all of them. (laughs) All of them. So the book starts in the middle of nowhere, California, where we meet Izumi. And Izumi is a Japanese girl who is growing up with her single mom, and she always feels a little bit out of place. She's been really, really lucky that in her very, very white town, she's been able to find other Asian compatriots to hang out with, but they're all different kinds of Asians, and it's definitely like a coalition based on the fact that they're feeling othered, and together they feel togethered. And so she's just like chilling out with her BFF, and they find this book that has a poem in it that is signed. And her friend is like, oh my gosh, is this your dad? Because Azumi has never found out anything from her mother about her father, other than her hearing that it was a one night stand. And so she and her friend look into it and it turns out that her father, who she always thought was a one night stand, is actually the crown prince of Japan. What? And wrote her mother poetry. And wrote her mother poetry. So then she confronts her mother and is like, WTF. And her mom's like, okay, well, maybe you can meet your dad. And like does an intro through a friend of a friend. And then all of a sudden, all of Japan ambassadors, like security details show up at her house and whisk her away to Japan where she gets to meet her dad and her family, including all of her like very pesky, tricky relatives. It's very crazy rich Asians. And then as she's trying to figure out how to be a princess, how to be Japanese and Japanese from Japan versus Japanese American. She also has this amazing bodyguard who's like super hot, but like (laughs) surprisingly age appropriate. They make out. And then the Tokyo Tadler finds out, exposes them. He leaves, she goes back to America, devastated her dad comes to get her and is like no everything's okay i just want to get to know you better also your mom is still super hot and i've been growing orchids for her for the past 20 years and it all ends happily ever after or she and her mom go to japan or maybe her mom stays whatever her mom and dad clearly get back together and she goes back to japan and she gets back together with the bodyguard and they make out some more and that's the end so basically a princess diaries reboot it is a princess diaries reboot But I think that there's some interesting fundamental differences from The Princess Diaries. The most notable for me was that in The Princess Diaries, she's a very unwilling princess. She definitely does not want to be a princess, whereas in Tokyo Ever After, she jumps into it with surprising zest. Like, I was shocked when she makes a decision to basically destroy her private life in, like, no time at all. Like, she knows. She must know. That contacting her father means the destruction of the private forever and ever, amen. And yet, there like, doesn't seem to be any thought behind her doing that. Which, uh, you know, I'm not being critical of. It's just like, it's notable that this isn't a conversation. I thought it was an interesting space to explore. Yeah, I think it's what's interesting is the book was presented, at least in the summary, as a balance between feeling not quite American and feeling not quite Japanese. 
sometimes I feel like people's description of like what an American trait is, is like really gung-ho, thoughtless people who just follow their heart. And (laughs) and I'm like, I don't. I don't think that's the defining characteristic of being American. I do think there's obviously like a lot of things around like Horatio Alger, like self-made man, go-getter hustle culture in America. But it was very interesting to me that that seemed to be like her defining characteristic that she was like in every sort of situation, what a girl wants or like every single one of these movies. It's like the headstrong American girl breaks down the formal dad and just like makes makes everything better by being American. Right. Like, yeah, the destruction of whatever other traditional modes of being there are. The American just comes in and kicks over the door. Yeah, yeah. It's authentic. Exactly. And the American way is better. She came in really hot for someone who had done very little actual work. (laughs) The plot only takes place over her like spring break or something. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's like, It's like a couple of weeks and everyone's like, oh, your Japanese has improved so much. I'm like, no one can learn a language over spring break. Maybe our producer Kimberly can do it, but like, that's a unique case. Right. Not not some rando who has self-admittedly very average grades in high school. Maybe an immersion class, but she's spending a couple of hours on language couple of hours learning how silkworms work. Like, everybody wanted her to have a hobby, and so she spent hours getting a hobby. It was just like, I don't understand when she was learning Japanese. And when everyone was complimenting her, I was like, how? Yeah, she's, like, explaining etymologies by the end. Yeah. Coming in hot, where all of a sudden she's like, well, should women inherit the crown? Like, I've read the Constitution, and maybe we should rethink this whole thing. Yeah. She's explaining constitutional (laughs) law. (laughs) It was just like a really, it was a really just robust, like American Americanness. And I think one of the things that sort of disappointed me about the book is I was hoping for a little more nuance. Of course, I love like trashiness and I love like a good rom com. And of course, I love Pair the Spares that her mom and dad got back together. Like all of that yeah. stuff I like love. But I think that there was an opportunity to really compare and contrast the Japanese American experience with the Japan Japanese experience. Mm-hmm. And I'll pause where there is like a lampshade of like after World War II, her grandparents on her mom's side really felt it to be important to assimilate into um, American culture for obvious reasons. But I still think that there is a weirdness to being like Asian American versus Asian Asian. One of my colleagues asked me like, why is it that we have like black books and Latinx books, but they're always called like Asian American books or Asian American writers. We haven't come up with like one term that doesn't have the word American, like African-American is gone. It's now black. And I think my perspective on it is because what we're talking about is Asian American versus Asian Asian. And there's already like a huge push pull within the Asian American community where sometimes you almost want to issue or like get rid of the Asian Asian part because it communicates how you are not American and it communicates that you are separate from everybody else versus when you say black when you say Latinx there's an innate sort of understanding that you are from this country I feel like there was just more here to talk about that difference in identity and I I think it was just like a missed opportunity or it was just done really, really light handed. I think if she had struggled more with Japanese, if she had struggled more with all of these different pieces, I think it would have been a more compelling story for me. But it was literally just like over the course of a spring break, she now is like amending the constitution with her perfect Japanese. And it just like didn't make sense to me. That's true. A lot of the cultural struggles that she has adapting to 
are more about the difference in class that she undergoes than about the difference in culture that she undergoes. You know, making sure she talks to the right politicians in the right order, the customs around being royalty more than the customs around being Japanese. Right. Or like, yeah, Japanese American food versus Japan, Japan food. And like, I think they're just like small cultural things that I would have loved more detail on where she felt more out of place because she feels like she should be able to like step in more, but she actually can't. Yeah. Were there any examples of Japanese food that she was indifferent, even indifferent on? It seemed like she fell in love with every Japanese dish she was presented immediately. Right. And not that she, I'm sure all the food was delicious. Yes. yes. But (laughs) I do feel like there should have been like a bigger push pull to mean like her American identity, other than everybody sort of like accepted it and like she got away with everything. Let's dig in on some of the identity stuff now, because I think that's a big part of this book. And if it's doing interesting things, I think it's doing interesting things in the space of ontology and identity, how we situate ourselves in a world. The book begins with her trying to figure out who she is. Literally, the very first thing that happens is she's writing a like reading diary on personal growth through the lens of Huck Finn, I think mm-hmm. is, is like, and it's like the very first thing that's happening. And her friend Nora is trying to like get her to do something different because it's boring to write essays. I mean, it is. And yeah, yeah. And so it's it's her trying to like figure out where she is in the world. And she's a mediocre student. Like sort of everything is average. She's exceptional in that she has her four friends who all find commonality in being essentially not white. So there's an exploration of identity there where it's like you're defining yourself by I'm not this thing, so I'm this thing. And there's attempts in the book at identifying oneself by one's culture there's uh, an attempt obviously like the big one is she's trying to figure out who she is based on her heritage like i need to know my father in order to know myself and i need to understand the land of my grandparents in order to know myself and all of these things end up being insufficient in different ways she's unable to situate herself within a culture firmly she's unable to situate herself within a heritage firmly because she can't figure out the rules of the place she's living there's the knowledge of her own heritage and then there's also the heritage of people project onto her like what it means to be a princess and what it means to be japanese that she feels like she needs to meet and she does that insufficiently she has identity projected onto her in the form of her physical appearance like again one of the first things that happens is a uh, a boy she has a crush on says i i'm not that into asian chicks or something so she's got some stuff projected onto her there. Yeah, I think there's like two things that are coming up for me with all of that. The first is there's something interesting about wanting to know where your family is from and does it actually give you a sense of identity? And I think it's interesting to me like how meaningful it was when her father was able to show her the lineage of her mother's side of the family mm-hmm. in Japan. I think why that was interesting to me was... I don't know how necessary that was. And that might be like a controversial take, but if you're trying to communicate this idea of like an American-Japanese split, her mother and her parents had been in America for a very long time, for like Mm -hmm. 100 years almost. I think it maybe comes down again to like the Asian-American versus Asian experience. I I think maybe maybe it was also part of me where I was just like, I wanted to be more of like an American-American experience in Japan versus like everything she experienced in Japan. She was like falling over herself. Like this is exactly like where I belong. There was like no sort of actual feeling of giving something up by being there and inheriting her throne or whatever. It didn't seem like she missed anything in America other than her friends and her mom, which maybe speaks to the fact that she grew up in a really white area. And the second part that I think was hard for me was just like how accepted she was by 
Tokyo Society at the end like she gives like one magazine interview and everyone is like oh she's amazing she like protects one baby and she's amazing (laughs) and (laughs) I just find that to be so improbable like if I think about like Kate Middleton being a commoner there was a lot of things about how she originally before she became beloved because she got compared to a black woman that she was like hunting for Prince William to plot her way into the royal family. And then, especially with Meghan Markle, being an American and Black coming into UK society, there was a huge, obviously, issue with that. And, like, they actually had to escape back to America because of that cultural, racial difference. I think there was just, like, a sort of a lack of nuance or a lack of difficulty. Like, she won them over so quickly. Yeah, that's true, right? She leads with her heart, which you, I think, correctly identify with being this, like, headstrong, lead with your heart, American, coming in, and then Japan loves her for it because she protected one baby. But I I also think that this, like, the Tokyo Tattler, the the tabloids that, like, stand in for all media in the novel, is always looking for a simple story to tell. And so, like, if you just get this one event, they, like, latch onto it, they tell one story with that, or then when the affair with her super hot bodyguard comes out, like that becomes a one story. And this idea of like, and I think this is another exploration of identity these days is that there's also this way to identify in terms of profiles. And I think that that's similar to what the monarch was trying to do with her. So the Tokyo Tattler is trying to tell a certain story about her and like tell the world who she is without like consulting her. But also the monarch is saying, Find a hobby. You need this like one line and your interest is in silkworms or in whatever else she tries. And so this idea of like building profiles for yourself and building profiles for others that are easily digestible and can exist in the internet or whatever, that that's what identity is. And she's like trying to break out of these kinds of little boxes of what does it mean to be American or Japanese or whatever. Like the, the struggle of the book is her struggling to break free of these one-line profiles that come laden with all sorts of assumptions. Yeah. I don't know how hard she tries to adapt to the society. I think maybe that's the thing. Is It doesn't seem like she even gave it like a good college try. I was so surprised that she made out with her bodyguard halfway through the book. <laughs> like, I thought that was going to be like a very romantic at the end. Like, they get together, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, you really couldn't just like not make out with your bodyguard for two weeks? Your bodyguard is like that not committed to his job that he would... What? Right. And that their relationship starts off with a like Lizzie Bennet and Mr. Darcy kind of thing where they they think ill of each other and don't understand each other. So the, that they turn around that entire thing and make out in like four days. It's pretty great. Yeah. It's very Bachelor in Paradise. Yes. Maybe when you're spending all your time together. Right. It speeds up. It speeds up the timeline yeah but it it just felt like it was too fast for me it was like not it was too fast that's all i'll say it's like i just i I couldn't understand them being so not committed to their duty they kept on being like duty and like the world's keeping them apart and like how sad that is that Mm -hmm. destiny and like nothing is keeping you two apart you guys literally did not resist this for more than like one minute yeah nor did they even try to spin it in a certain way yeah um they just sort of like let let that happen I do think that this is an interesting, the way that the novel ends up, I think it's a pretty interesting exploration of identity in some ways. If we gloss over the unbelievable plot points about how fast these things went, you know, she's this mediocre person 
with mediocre grades, just trying to figure out who she wants to be. And I think that I can explain perhaps the quickness with which she just accepts the destruction of the private because she's like so in need of somebody to tell her what she is. And she's like trying to figure that out. And so I think there was probably something about her that was driving for this. Just like, tell me what I am. Like if I'm royalty and I'm a princess, then like I will play that part because it's too difficult for me to figure that out on my own. And I think at the end of the novel, when her friend Nora real talks her, so when when Nora says, she says something to the effect of, there are no easy answers. We all have to figure out who we are and where we fit in. And the implication is sort of like, we're all in this together. And like, at least she's got some ride or die friends that are going to be there with her and trying to figure it out. And this is sort of like how it always is. And there are no you're a princess, you're, you're Japanese, your father is this, and then all of a sudden you have the comfort of being like, ah, yes, now I just follow instructions and I live and everything is going to be happily ever after. Yeah. Like to be told to perform Japanese or to perform femininity or to perform the role of princess is the, the solution. And obviously it's not the solution and that's the thing that she has to learn. No, I totally agree with you. I don't know why I'm so stuck on this idea that I don't think that she tried very hard to perform the <laughs> the role of princess. <laughs> what were the things that she, like her gaffes, is like, oh, you don't know, like an interpersonal thing about the prime minister. Right. You don't know that the prime minister's sister is on the outs. You made out with your bodyguard. Put too much faith in Yoshi. Yeah, that one was super obvious. <laughs> I was like, wow, you're not even trying to make it very clear that this guy is going to like betray her. Yeah, and uh, that she is drawn to him at the beginning of the novel because he's somebody who is trying to carve out his own identity, even though everybody's telling him who he should be, I also think was interesting. Like if her arc is... I want the world to just like tell me who I'm going to be because I'm struggling right now to figure it out on my own. So like, just give me the answer. Let me perform whatever you tell me I am. And then she needs to learn that that's flawed and whatever. But then the first person she meets when she enters the unknown world is Yoshi. And he's like the opposite of this. He is unapologetically Yoshi. Everybody's trying to tell him he needs to be a certain way. And he just completely is not that. So maybe she's drawn to his, I don't know, what she perceives as being authentic. Oh, yeah. It totally makes sense why you're drawn to Yoshi. Also, she's a teenager and we are reading it from a vantage point where it's clear that Yoshi is evil. But like, no one wants to believe their cousin is evil. <laughs> But I think that goes back to the point of, like, all of her gaffes, other than making out with her bodyguard, were... But even making out with your bodyguard are, like, someone in that society basically led you astray. Mm -hmm. The getting the name wrong with the prime minister was her cousin setting her up. Getting drunk at karaoke was Yoshi setting her up. Making out with your bodyguard was... I think he initiated. Yeah. And maybe that speaks back to the point that you were saying about how she was just really looking for instructions on how to find her identity and learn to eventually like make her own choices and make her own mistakes. I just wish that there had more moments where she was recovering from actual mistakes of her own mm -hmm. versus mistakes that were almost like sort of put on her where you could excuse them. That's a good point, right? A lot of a lot of the mistakes she made were simply due to a lack of knowledge or somebody was doing something to her. But maybe that's if she's going to learn the flaw of having her identity transposed onto her by other people, which in some ways she can't help, like with an Asian American hyphenated identity, like people are going to put things onto her. So in some ways she can't help the projection of identity onto her. But she can control the moments when she lets people guide her and then realizes that they guided her wrong. And so maybe those 
faux pas that she has in the course of this novel are directly related to that struggle of hers. Like if she's going to learn that she needs to make authentic mistakes, then she needs to be in positions where she can make authentic mistakes and not have these mistakes like given to her by other people. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I'm trying to think why I thought that I was going to like this book as much as I liked Princess Diaries because I felt it was going to like check off a lot of my boxes. I, I think there is like this part about Princess Diaries where she is reluctant. Mm-hmm. And that's like so like, oh, the reluctant hero is the one that you're like, you trust more or you're like more excited by or the one who doesn't get tricked as easily. But I think the reason, another reason that I really like Princess Diaries is it takes place on her home turf and then it switches turfs later. And so I don't think that there was a lot of time for Izumi to process her identity in America and how that impacted her relationships. Like, are you telling me, like, really her ex-boyfriend Forrest didn't go to the tabloids? Or, like, all of this stuff would come out from her high school? I just, I found it very shocking that we, like, basically switched. There was a complete divide between these two worlds. Also, that her dad just, like, accepted that she was his daughter without a DNA test and, like, sent all of, like, the Japanese ambassador security to go get her. I was like, wait, you're not going to call her or give her a DNA test before you start going this aggressive and flying her to Japan. Yeah. (laughs) I believe it's because he's obviously still in love with her mother, but it's still... Right. Within the logic of the book, it's because he's blinded by love and, like, if this is a way where he could be reconnected with the mother, then he's going to jump blindly into it I think yeah is given the logic of the novel whether or not the logic of the novel works is yeah yeah, yeah. A different fair question. fair there is something interesting about the father being somebody that is essentially the only character other than her who breaks down that wall between the two worlds like you're right there's what happens in Japan and that is completely isolated from what happens in California the only thing that makes it across that divide is Izumi and the text messages that she sends back home. Like, those are the only two things that connect the two worlds, it seems. And then the father comes in at the end, and and he breaks down that wall as well. Yeah, and I also think there's an element where he talks about, like, why he and her mother broke up at Harvard, believing that there wasn't a way to be in both worlds. Yeah. And him just being really resigned to that and choosing Japan. And her choosing, I will stay in America and I will not disrupt him picking Japan. I think the ending of it really reminded me of the end of High School Musical 3. I swear this is going to be related. Great. So basically, Zac Efron is like torn between these two different schools, the University of Albuquerque, where he could be playing basketball, or Gabriella, his girlfriend, is at Stanford, and his best friend's going to University of Albuquerque. And so he's like, what do I do? And also, like, I'm really good at theater stuff. And so, like, what school should I pick? And then he gives, he gives a speech where he basically announces which college he goes to. He's like, I want to become a basketball player, and I want to do theater arts, and I want to be close to my girlfriend. And thankfully, UC Berkeley has all of these things. How perfect! (laughs) And I felt like there was just a bit of that at the end. It's like, oh, Japan and America? It's totally fine. Like, it's the UC Berkeley situation. It just got everything. Without acknowledging that UC Berkeley is not the best for basketball. It is not the best for theater. It is not even that close to Stanford. (laughs) (laughs) There was something nice in the ending, though, if I'm going to be positive about it, is her acceptance of a lot of parts of her personality, where she accepts, like, I'm not a great student, and she comes clean about that. She comes clean, like, I don't know what I want to be or what kind of princess I can be. But, like, she commits herself to a process of figuring it out and living authentically. And so this idea of, like, given a world where a lot of things are going to be projected onto you, the answer, or it's, a, it's not an answer, which I think is the point. The lack of an answer is 
be authentic, make your own mistakes, be constantly transforming your identity, step into the communities that we essentialize every day, but like step into those communities when they're appropriate to, or when you find value in them or when you find power in doing so, but then step out of them when they stop serving your, your best interests or they start serving the like picture of yourself that you aspire to be. No, I totally agree. I feel like the reason I am being critical is because I had high hopes and I felt like there was an opportunity to say more about like the Asian American identity yeah, and yeah. thinking about what stories are available to be published for Asian American youth in the country. Yeah. Like similar to how all the books that were published by black authors or like basically that like white publishing allowed to be sold as a black story are there's a shooting and a student observes it and they overcome it by dating a white person, which is The Hate yeah. You Give and Dear Martin. And I was like, why is this the story that we're saying is like the black experience that we are allowed to make it more broadly out? And why are those the stories that are being selected? And I think for this, it falls into like that crazy rich Asian, which I think also crazy rich Asians to a certain extent also plays into the model minority myth a little bit of basically that Asian people are like super smart. There's an element of like glamor that is associated with it. It's a lot of positive. I think it reiterates this idea of like almost like benevolent racism to Asian people mm -hmm. of like they're rich and they're glamorous and they're smart and good at math and all of these sorts of things. And I think that there was an opportunity to contrast these two identities a little bit more. I think the author was trying to do this by making her sort of a mediocre student. Yeah, there's even a line where it says like, oh, her classmates ask her for mouth help and she's like, jokes on them, I'm terrible at math. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I felt that there was areas where you could have pushed that more or told a different story about what it is to be Asian in America. Yeah. I mean, like with much of the novel, these things were just moved really quickly. Yeah. Like pretty much all the examples we just established of the author trying to overcome those things happen in almost a single paragraph right. in the first 10 pages. Uh, and then they, it, it sort of moves on from there. And part of it is maybe it's, it's just one book. Like The Princess Diaries had 11 books in the series yeah. where you're able to spend that time with her processing it in New York. And then eventually like going to Genovia. Is Tokyo ever after a series? It says that it's number one out of, I don't know, on Goodreads. Oh, question marks. Question yeah. mark. Okay, cool. Then maybe maybe this book was her just uh, establishing a status quo really fast background story for a deeper story to be determined. Maybe I also just don't want her to inherit the throne. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's also where this is coming from. I'm like, this like American interloper just coming in and like swooping in and changing the constitution and yeah. getting the throne. Right. right. The golden sisters. Shining sisters. Shining sisters. Because okay. it's like the twin girls from The Shining. Ah, oh, okay. Like they've got a legitimate beef Yeah. <laughs> They're being groomed for this thing their whole lives. They've, they took on the stupid profile hobby um, and like have been living this life and making these sacrifices. But they didn't try to save the baby. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and I think it, then I think that speaks into this idea back into uh, what we talked about last time about like why was Vanessa Williams able to become Miss America mm -hmm. and how much of it was that she had, wasn't like a beauty queen girl, like that she didn't hadn't grown up in the pageant culture yeah. and was unburdened compared to the other contestants. Right. If the rest of the royal family is conditioned to believe that their body is more important than all the other bodies in a room. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. That's their conditioning. And like she didn't have that conditioning. So her instinct was to jump in front of the more vulnerable bodies in the room. But again, maybe that's a good thing. Like I, then I think back to like Meghan Markle and how important it is that she and Harry are talking out about what the firm is like behind closed doors. And I think it was very evident in the interview with Oprah that Harry was just taught that all this was right mm-hmm. and how they treated people and protecting pedophiles or whatever. That's just like what you do and that's how it works. And that Megan, to a certain extent, was able to open his eyes to things that are just like, just because it's done does not mean how, it's how it should be done. Which then again, though, suggests the idea of like, the UK hates Megan. Yeah. And I feel like Japan <laughs> should have hated her a little <laughs> bit more. I also was really hoping, like, obviously Yoshi was the bad guy, and you knew that from the beginning, but I was hoping that she and the Shining Twins would, like, come around and become friends by the end. Yeah, I was too. Also, I was I was at some point expecting the protagonist to realize why they might have mm-hmm. a legitimate reason to not like her. Like, obviously they're malicious, and but, like, at some point there should have been some empathy extended in one direction yes. at least. Like, <laughs> like somebody mm-hmm. should have realize that the other side is struggling with something real and that just didn't happen maybe the next book yeah maybe the next book yeah where is she going to live yeah that's unclear obviously her father went to harvard and so she i imagine with her newfound pedigree has the ability to go to certain schools that weren't available to her earlier and what is the authentic decision there like what will she choose or is she going to just take a gap year if all this happened in the course of a spring break, imagine what kind of stuff would go down <laughs> in a gap year. I mean, she would definitely have a baby and they would change the constitution. Just they would all get done with, and now it's just a month. Yeah. Um, all right. Just like some scenes I took note of is when yeah. she saves a baby and there's a line like, Tokyo Tattler read, she's Japan's very own, the true daughter of Japan. She makes a comment that her identity is like apple pie and mochi. Oh, there's so much poetry in this. <laughs> but see, they, yeah, when they said, like, when the Tokyo Tattler was like, oh, Japanese-owned princess, I don't buy it. Maybe they did it because it gave her something to lose and the stakes were higher. I just don't believe that Japan would be so welcoming of an American interloper. Yeah, that that wasn't the story that they couldn't mm-hmm. look away from. So there's a line where she says, she's just arrived in Japan, and she says... Things are going well, but she like has a couple mess ups, these faux pas that mostly she's set up to experience. And she says, like, okay, it'll be fine and it's going to stay fine so long as I don't mess up again. And I thought that was interesting because we have a lot of identities put on us in a lot of different ways. And like the idea that if we take this to any culturally constructed identity, like gender, for example, um, and you say, oh, I'm performing malehood so long as I don't mess up again, I'll fit this box and I'll be happy and I'll fit in. I'll have a community and a communal identity and a support system. I just need to like make sure I fit these boxes. And I thought it was an interesting line when she like enters this royalty situation, a Japanese situation, and she's going to try her best to perform that. You've pointed out that she doesn't actually make honest attempts, but like (laughs) her idea of like, that's not an active process. It's so long as I don't mess up again. So I think that fits into what you were saying, where she's not like, so long as I try harder. That's not it. It's so long Mm -hmm. as I don't mess up again. And maybe that is like the difference of like fighting for yourself and for protection versus fighting for something and for like a movement forward. Because I think that by the end, I think that she was taking more 
of a proactive statement versus like, I'm not going to mess up versus, hey, I've got the PR solution for this. And I'm going to be like really transparent about what it's been like for me. It's interesting when you're talking about the loss of the private, how do you start taking like control of your identity? Literally, like the end of the book is her doing that, declaring what her identity is publicly to everyone. I guess that with the with the story of identity is like an empowering sort of thing. If this isn't the way that you were going with this, let me know. But we could possibly extend that line of thought to Akio's storyline. And I think that this appears in some philosophy too, where systems of government have an impact on the way that people live their day-to-day lives. So like in a monarchy where the belief is that power is inherited, that people have very fixed roles in their life. And so Akio, for example, he doesn't have a choice. He wants to be a pilot, but he doesn't really have a choice. His father was a guard. He has to be a guard. She's a princess. She has to be a princess. And so there's this structure that people have to fit into. And at the end, when Akio breaks out of that and quits his job in order to pursue a more authentic experience, and she says, I'm going to still live as a princess, but I'm going to do so in this transparent, original, and authentic way, it's like showing different paths within that system of there's the expectation and breaking out of it. Exactly. I think in that way, it did show how well matched they were. There's a core of them seeking for that sort of like authenticity of, of themselves that like obviously found each other in that experience. It's also interesting to think about choosing a public identity and how she chose hers. It just, it reminds me of like everything that we put onto like YouTubers and all these influencers where it's like, you need to be authentic. It's a very American idea of like what it is to be a celebrity or to be in the public consciousness of transparency and authenticity. But when we know that actually those are like very, very curated experiences for their audiences in reality in order to create these like parasocial relationships. Yeah, the profile identities. Well, should we just transition to the next book? Yeah, but I want to say something nice about this book because I still had fun reading it. I think it was just more of a beachy read than I was anticipating. Because it did have the potential to investigate a lot of things, like the way that we willingly destroy the private in order to have the public, like on social media. Like these are things that are blown up at a scale where like she goes from random high schooler to princess of Japan. But like in a lot of ways, we could live a more private existence and then we choose to display it on the internet. So they could have like explored that whole decision that we make and that she makes so quickly. It could have explored that a little bit more. It could have explored the culture and the ways that she feels like she authentically could not fit in to the performance of princess or performance of authentically Japanese or performance of, you know, it could have done a lot of these things better. The author gave herself a platform to do all of these things. And then I think focused on some, some very, small things that were a little less complicated right exactly and i think in her adapting to japan so quickly learning japanese in a week i think the the book suffered for that or suffered with that because the challenge it didn't feel as hard everything basically was a very tied up with a bow in the ending and I think that we've had a lot more nuanced YA that we've been reading up until this point versus this is a, like very feels like a like a romantic yeah. comedy where it's like, don't look at the plot right. holes. I mean, they warned us. They said it was a retelling of the Princess Diaries and that's pretty fun ride. Yeah. Or do you find this to be less intricate or less profound than Princess Diaries? I grew up with the Princess Diaries, so I feel like I have a bias towards the Princess Diaries. I, I think that I, I just keep coming back to the idea that Princess Diaries takes place in America. 
And there is like a processing of your identity in America, what that means for your friendships, what that means for your school and all of those sorts of things. But I think that obviously with the racial difference, like Nia is white, Mm -hmm. even though she's like somewhat of like an outcast and like awkward, she still has the idea like she can be American in her whiteness. So it does make sense that Izumi would be a little bit more desperate to like get rid of these like American shackles and sort of move to another place. They both have ugly pets. They both have a weird neighbor. There's a relationship with a bodyguard in both. Like there's definitely some some shouts. Yeah, the weird neighbor is only in the movie. But I think that obviously the author of Tokyo Ever After was taking inspiration from I think both the books and the movies and probably the movies more because I think more people have seen the movies than have actually read the books. And I think maybe also the characters in Princess Diaries are more flawed. Her relationship with her father is a lot different. In the Princess Diaries books, her dad is dead in the movies. She's known him the entire time, but it's the idea that like, oh, you're a princess now because I like can't have any more kids and you're the only one that I've got. And sort of what that relationship is like and her relationship with her best friend becomes really tested in the books as well. They have like a huge falling out yeah. later on in the series. I think that that in the Princess Diaries, there's more conflicts close to home. Yeah. Like that really close to your character in that private sphere. Right. Her her ride or die friends are ride or die consistently through the entire thing. The biggest conflict is that one of them, it's hinted, has a crush on her father. And like <laughs> that gets weird. More than but hinted. Yeah. <laughs> Asian George Clooney. Yeah, maybe in that it sort of speaks to, it seems like she does have this base in America, in California, that feels solid. And what I was hoping for is like, sometimes Mia ends up feeling unsure on both sides. Yeah. And more of that like push-pull. Well, for next month, we do have a recommendation, right? We do a recommendation for our listeners. And if there's any other listeners who'd like to recommend a book... We would love to read whatever books you would find interesting to hear us talk about. We are on Twitter now. Oh, yeah, we are on Twitter. So you can contact us on Twitter. What's our handle, James? Is it lit underscore connections? Yes, our Twitter handle is lit underscore connections. You can follow us there. We're always going to have a pinned tweet that will tell you what we're currently reading and what our latest episode is. The DMs are open. You can recommend books to us if you'd like. Yes, please. So the recommendation that we'll be reading next is Spin the Dawn. It is sold as Mulan meets Project Runway. So sort of in the theme that we're talking about, we did get a lot of really good outfit porn in this book. (laughs) Yeah, we did. Some dressing of the hero moments. Yes. And it started pretty early. There was the mother apparently has a love of makeup and this like idea of makeup as a symbol for hope in the future and that it could be a good day kind of thing. And so that was established in the first chapter of this book. And then we had a lot of like the arming of the hero in dress kind of moments. But I think in the same way, like trying to figure out your own identity within that, although they still didn't let her wear any dark colors. (laughs) No, no. It's too American, too emo. So the Spin the Dawn book has a beautiful cover, and it's by Elizabeth Lim, and it's apparently part of a series called The Blood and Stars. So I've never read any of these things. I don't know much about it, but I'm excited to dig in this month and record with you next month. Yes, it's going to be great. I do love a good Project Runway success story. (laughs) Literary Connections is hosted by me, James Earle, and Melissa Hansen, and we are produced by Kimberly Johnson. Please join us next month when we'll be reading Spin the Dawn by Elizabeth Lim.
So we start in Bumble Fuck. I can use the word fuck on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you have. No, we now I know James's kids are listening. <laughs> yeah, one kid asked me straight up, do you say curse words on the podcast? And I said, I don't, but my friend Melissa does. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to try not to do it in the summary, though. So it, it starts clean. 